So we have been studying the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to do one more, one more time in Ecclesiastes. And I thought, um, well, it's kind of strange, I guess, to end the semester. For some of y'all, ending your career as a college student by raising the question of why are you a college student in the first place? <laughs> Maybe it was something that should have happened uh, at the beginning of your... So the freshmen, you know, you're getting this at the beginning... The seniors might be like, well, maybe we need to go back and do this all over again. Um, I do think, you know, it's interesting, even um, Belmont and many other schools recognize the importance of you thinking about why you're doing what you're doing. At least my understanding, that's the purpose of freshman seminar, right? Is, is to actually think about why are you here to maybe introduce a little epistemological humility, um, a little sense of I, maybe I don't know everything. Maybe there are things for me to learn. It seems like a good way to, uh, to begin. And the book of Ecclesiastes has a lot to say about wisdom and also a little bit about folly. So we're going to jump right in, read two passages. It's on the, the top of your outline there. The first is in chapter 1, starting at verse 12. I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I devoted myself to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under heaven. What a heavy burden God has laid on men. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless or frustrating, a chasing after the wind. What is twisted cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I thought to myself, look, I have grown and increased in wisdom. More than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me, I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly, but I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. And then chapter 2, we're going to pick up verse 12. Then I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom. He comes back to this. And also madness and folly. What more can the king's successor do than what has already been done. I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise man has eyes in his head while the fool walks in the darkness, but I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. Then I thought in my heart, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said in my heart, this too is meaningless. Or remember that word havel, which is translated frustrating. For the wise man, like the fool, will not be long remembered. In days to come, both will be forgotten. Like the fool, the wise man, too, must die. It's kind of a bummer. <laughs> it's kind of a downer. But honestly, it is actually really helpful to consider why you do what you do. And Ecclesiastes is actually a very practical book in calling us to take stock of the situation that we're in. Life under the sun is after the fall. It's after sin has come into the world and messed up everything. And Ecclesiastes keeps telling us that what is crooked cannot be straightened, but men and women, the book says, go in search of many schemes, many things that they throw themselves into to try to rise above the frustration, to try to make a, a, a sort of a kingdom here on earth 
where we won't be disappointed, where we won't be sad, where we won't be frustrated and sorrowful. But in doing that, we often miss the good gifts that God has for us, even in the midst of the brokenness. I, I was thinking, now most of you guys aren't even old enough to remember this. This is what happens when you get old. You think of, oh, this is the perfect illustration. Then I realized this ad campaign was in 1992, which is uh, a little before you all. But maybe you've heard this. Bud Dry had this whole ad campaign, why ask why? Anybody remember that? No? Why ask why? Simple, to the point. Why ask why? Drink Bud Dry. Simple, elegant. Now, it's easy to point, you know, fingers at this sort of thing, to point out the manipulation, right? They're trying to get you to buy something, so they don't want you to think about it, right? It's pretty obvious. Um, but the thing I want to get at is, what about trying to live by that kind of philosophy? What about trying to live by the philosophy of why, ask why? Just be, just do, instead of thinking about why. That's kind of what Ecclesiastes is looking at here. He says, look, I threw myself into wisdom and I gained wisdom beyond anyone who'd ever ruled Jerusalem and been the king before me. I also threw myself into madness and folly. And he doesn't just, not just his escapes, but his serious pursuits to see if it might make life in this world more tolerable. He's really exploring these things. Now, there's a friend of mine, Steve Garber, wrote a book, fabulous book, about how faith is formed during your college years. The book is called The Fabric of Faithfulness. And he says this, why are you in college? Why are you in college? Why are you pursuing a college education? He says, for most people in our day and age, the answer is because it's a passport to a privileged life. If you have the opportunity to go to college, it sets you up for a privileged life. Is that a good enough reason? Is that a big enough purpose for why you're doing what you're doing? Steve actually was in college. He dropped out of college when he had a journalism professor who said, you know, we don't need more people to write about stuff. We need more people with something to say. And he thought, I'm not learning anything about what needs to be said. And he dropped out of college and he went to Europe and he studied at a place called Brie with Francis Schaeffer and his life was changed forever, right? Now he sits on boards and think tanks and gets rich people and corporations to give money to artists who are upstream of the culture, artists that you know and have thought, and, but you don't know his name, but he's a fabulous, fabulous guy because he goes around and he asks people all the time, why are you doing what you're doing? I had a mentor in RUF, a guy named Bebo Elkins, and he used to go around, he was like our area coordinator. He would come around to campuses, visit campus ministries, said, my job is simply this, to ask campus ministers, these hot shots who think they got it all together, why are you doing what you're doing? Why are you doing what you're doing? It's a good question. So let me ask you, why are you doing what you're doing? Why are you pursuing knowledge or wisdom? Because that's what university is about, right? Ecclesiastes says that the quest for knowledge and understanding is a burden. 
Isn't that interesting? Now, of course, this time of the year, it feels like that, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, the end of Ecclesiastes says, of the making of books, there is no end, and much study wearies the body. It's, that seems like accurate, especially about this time. Yeah. God's word even like, confirms that. But what I'm as- interested here is the way I've devoted myself to study and explore all the wisdom of all that is done under heaven, what a heavy burden God has laid on man. And then in that second section I read, wisdom, wisdom brings sorrow. The more wisdom, the more knowledge, the more grief. Now, in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, it also talks about this burden. Here, let, me, let me read these verses. I have seen the burden God has laid on men. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men, mankind, it's gender neutral, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. So here's what Ecclesiastes is saying. We are inescapably bound to try to find meaning and purpose. It's one of the things that separates us from all other creatures. It's why mankind makes art and not just tools. We believe in our hearts that life has meaning and it connects to something bigger than us. Even the postmodernists and the deconstructionists who rage against meaning and authorial intent still seek to persuade you and understand their authorial intent when they write books and they teach classes, right? You can't escape meaning. You can't. Even that itself is a meaning. It's self-refuting. It's why logical positivism didn't last very long as a serious philosophical perspective, but it lives on in people that want to use that kind of cynicism to deconstruct all truth claims. The problem is you can't doubt everything all at once. You have to stand somewhere to doubt, okay? And where are you standing and why? Those are questions that often are never thought about, not considered, but they must be considered. See, here's the thing, though. This burden that God has set eternity in the hearts of all of us, this burden is actually a gift because it keeps us from being satisfied without understanding. And yet, here's the thing. It says that he set eternity in the hearts of all people, yet they can't understand the beginning from the end. So here's where God has put us. You have this inescapable longing to understand, and yet God has not just laid it out there for you, so you can go like, oh, cool, I get it. I'll just kind of go on my way. No, he's created us from the very beginning to be dependent upon him, and he still is leading us that way. As a matter of fact, the very end of the book of Ecclesiastes says this, that the words of the wise, including the words of this book, are like goads given from one shepherd. And I talked about that the first week, but let me just remind you, goads are the the little spikes that you put at the end of a pole that you jab an oxen in the rear when you want it to move. It's like a prick in the butt. That's what the words of the wise are supposed to be like. They are to disturb the comfortable and comfort the disturbed. They're supposed to get you to move. The words are supposed to get you to move, not just to be complacent. And they're given to you by the hand of a shepherd, by one who cares and wants to lead you even to good pastures. Though sometimes 
to sit with him and feast in a table in the face of your enemies. Right? This is Psalm 23. Right. So this burden is a gift because it pulls us towards eternity and it keeps us from being satisfied with just throwing up our hands and saying, ah, what's the, what's the point? Why ask why? <laughs> Drink but dry. That may work for a while. It may work the entire time you're in college. And it may even work longer than that. But it won't work forever. Folly as a life philosophy doesn't work for long. Though honestly, we can understand it in this way. If you're seeking knowledge to bring control to your life, and that's what I'm going to talk about next, all the ways we try to seek knowledge to bring control, it eventually will not work. I, I was thinking even this, like sometimes we talk about meaningless tragedies that happen. And I think that's an interesting way to think about it. Because I don't know if they're meaningless. The way the world breaks down is actually shouting to us that all is not right with the world. I would never say any tragedy is meaningless. That doesn't mean I can understand it. But it doesn't mean it's meaningless. And those that would want to throw up their hands and say, it's just meaningless, maybe not. Folly and thinking that everything is just meaningless doesn't work as a life philosophy for long. But neither does knowledge so that you control and predict and live the kind of life where you won't ever be disturbed or surprised. So wisdom's better than folly. It's better than folly, but it's not enough to fix what's broken. So let's talk about how we try to use knowledge as an idol to take control of life and escape its frustration. Remember, we only make idols, God substitutes, out of good gifts that he gives us. But when we try to take them and use them to do our bidding, that's when they become God substitutes. That's when we say to this thing, you're my God, save me. Whatever it is that's your gift. And knowledge and understanding is a gift. It's not a bad thing. Folly is worse. But knowledge is a good tool and a terrible savior, right? So we live in a world that believes in so much that education is the solution to all ills, whether it be pregnancy, HIV, crime, on and on and on. But knowledge by itself cannot correct morals, and it can't correct injustice because the heart is corrupt and education can't change the heart. Knowledge cannot change the heart. Isaiah 44, verse 20 says about those who are putting their hope in idols that a deluded heart misleads them. It's not just that you're thinking, you can't understand everything, it's that your heart is drawn to put its hope in things that it shouldn't put its hope in. And too often I think the church believes the same thing. If I can just know all the answers, know all the right theology, know all the Bible and how to respond to everybody and every question, then I'll be good. That doesn't work very well either. We love to be in the know. But do we really need to know everything? I think about that today even as I'm refreshing Twitter. You know, do I really need to know everything that's going on every minute? Maybe it really is true that with much knowledge comes much sorrow. Maybe this explains why Jesus, who had perfect knowledge, 
was described as a man of sorrows. But college is often a time when you gain more knowledge of the world, but it's the kind of knowledge that melts away your naive perception of the world. You may have come into college thinking, you know, I'm going to change the world, and then you actually bump up against professors who've tried and have given up their hope. Or maybe you find that these things that you thought were so wonderful that there's rottenness inside. I used to tell people, you know, years ago, I don't meet many people anymore that their whole hope and dream is to, you know, make it in the Christian music business, but I used to always think, you know, there's a lot of seedy stuff that went on in the Christian music business. I worked in it a long time myself. And I used to, when I, early on, 25 years ago, I'd be like, oh, you know, I know naive freshmen, you just need to you know, chill. Like, there's a lot of stuff that's going to disappoint you. I didn't have, and then I found I don't really have to do that. Because as soon as you start getting into it, then you're just like, ugh. And it's like that with everything. It's like Lord Bismarck's famous line about laws and sausages. You don't want to see how either of them are made right? It's true, and it's true of most anything that you're going to throw yourself into. So here's the question. Again, my, my friend Steve Garber asked this question in his book, Fabric of Faithfulness. Can you, as you begin to get a better understanding of what the real world is like, can you actually look at the world and still love the world? That's one of the most crucial questions in college, because you are going to get a bigger understanding of the world, and it won't always be pleasant. Can you look at the world, honestly look at the world, and still love the world? Where will you find the courage to do that? You see, seeking knowledge as a way to control life is a very popular strategy, and it happens all the time. It's like, you know, I, I was thinking about... Um, even, even when um, I had this great little idol chart and this little tool for diagnosing idols, everybody was like, oh, I just, I need to figure out what my idol is. It's like, okay, that is helpful. It's like my Enneagram number. It is helpful, <laughs> right? It, it's, all these things are helpful tools, but they won't, if you're trying to use it to control life and to understand everybody so perfectly that you'll just know how to navigate, well, then it's become an idol. And it doesn't work that way. And here's the problem with trying to control life by knowledge is there's always something you don't know. And it might be, it just might be, the crucial piece of information. And no matter how much you've studied, it will elude you just when you need it. Don't you worry about that? Right? No matter how well you've studied, there might be some crucial piece of knowledge you missed and everything comes crashing down. Knowledge is a very poor savior because you're finite. You're finite. Seeking knowledge as a way to control life doesn't work. And actually, more knowledge has often increased suffering. You know that the Holocaust was perpetrated by the most educated people in the history of the world, right? So lest you think that if we just were more educated, we understood things better, life would inevitably be better, it's not often the case. It makes people more skillful monsters sometimes. It does. It's not enough. And I think we're fools to think that the information age, instant access to all kinds of knowledge will automatically make for a more just and humane society. It may not at all. 
Because you still have to know what you should do, not if you can do it. Think about medical ethics and cloning and all these sorts of things, right? I love this quote by George Will. He's a political thinker, columnist. He said, there's nothing so vulgar left in our experience for which we can't transport some professor from somewhere to justify it. That's the world we live in, right? There's another way, though, I think that we can pursue knowledge as a, as a strategy or a tool to make life work better, and it's pursuing knowledge via doubt and skepticism and cynicism. Adopting a posture of cynicism and skepticism toward everyone and everything. And it's this basic promise that you're buying into, that if we never trust, we can never be tricked or never taken advantage of. Now listen, I know that some of y'all's stories make that a very reasonable, attractive strategy to pursue. I don't want to make light of that, right? We don't just run to these strategies unless there's pain and struggle. But this one doesn't work very well either because it's really just another way of trusting yourself and particularly trusting your ability to see through things. And what happens when you find that your heart really did begin to trust something and you said, I was never gonna do that. You know what happens? You can't forgive yourself. Because your strategy, your savior, was in your ability to see through things and anticipate how things might catch you off guard. And when it doesn't work, you're devastated. Again, it's a poor savior. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis. Anybody know his book, The Abolition of Man? It's not one of his more famous books, but if anybody's studying education, you have to read this book. Because it's a book about what will happen if we pursue value-neutral education. In other words, you want to create people who will be heroic and self-sacrificing, but you tell them that there's nothing worth dying for. And you see why it doesn't work. He says this, you cannot go on explaining away forever. You will find that you have explained explanation itself away. You cannot go on seeing through things forever. The whole point of seeing through something is to see something through it. It is good that the window should be transparent because the street or the garden beyond it is opaque. How if you saw through the garden too? A wholly transparent world is an invisible world. To see through all things is the same as not to see. You're looking for that quote. It's not on your sheet. It's not on your sheet. As I was thinking about this, I was like, I have to add this stuff about cynicism. All right. Now, the thing that I'm not going to have a lot of time to talk about, but I'm going to do, don't even try to follow the outline on this. I'm just going to give you the, the two-minute version of this next section, which is the quest for certainty versus living by faith. So um, one of the things that Ecclesiastes says here is that God has said eternity in the hearts of all people, yet he's frustrated our ability to understand everything perfectly. So he's created us and he's built into the whole created order a sense of dependence rather than independence, right? Because independence, while it may seem like it's life, it's actually death. To be independent of God is death, not life. But so often we want independence. We want to be self-sufficient. It's not what we're made for. It's like telling a fish that if it can finally be free of the water, everything will be amazing. And it doesn't work out so well for the fish when they're set free from the water. Okay? 
And that's what it's like to be set free from God and to be independent and do whatever you want. It's not what you were made for, and it doesn't work. So, Christianity. Christianity comes into the world that is dominated by abstract ideas and people trying to find abstract principles of life, truths, philosophical ideas. That's not the only thing swirling around, but it's definitely one of those things. And instead, Christianity comes and says, truth is found in a story. A story that's actually still unfolding, that even the last chapter hasn't yet been written. So here's what's interesting. There is a Christian philosopher, a guy named Augustine, who basically said that you know, the heart of what Christian understanding is, is that faith is unto knowledge, that faith is always at the root of knowledge. You're either trusting in your sensory um, abilities, you're trusting in what other people have told you, what other people have been able to measure, what people have, have done in the past. You're always dependent at some level on faith. You can't test everything and you can't know everything, okay? And yet, as the history of ideas goes along, there's a guy named Rene Descartes. And Descartes wants to get to a place not of faith, but of certainty. And so what he says is, we can get to a more solid, instead of living by faith, we can get to a point where we can doubt everything until we can't doubt anymore, and then we'll be at bedrock. And when we get there, then we can build on that, and that way we won't live by faith, we'll be able to live by reason. This is what we call the age of enlightenment. The problem is, Nietzsche comes along, maybe you've heard of him, and he says, you know, the problem with Descartes is he didn't actually doubt enough. He didn't doubt thoroughly enough. Even his doubt was still shaped by this kind of construction and these kind of Christian ideas that, that you can't, you can't really get to the certainty that Descartes thought he could get to because even Descartes was believing in something. And it's, it's kind of like maybe you've seen the movie The Matrix. So here's the question is, how does Descartes know he's not in The Matrix? It's a very interesting question. It's actually a very difficult philosophical question. It's the same question Timothy O'Leary raised in the late 60s with LSD. How do you know that when you take LSD, and he was a professor at Harvard at the time, how do you know that taking LSD doesn't actually put you more in touch with reality rather than out of touch with reality, right? How do you know? Faith is always, faith is always unto knowledge. And so here's where we are now, is Nietzsche comes along and says that doubt actually leads to nihilism, but don't worry about it. <laughs> you just make your own reality. Of course, that doesn't work very well. It breaks down in lots of ways, which I don't have time to get into tonight. But Ecclesiastes is saying, you know, we shouldn't have dismissed Augustine so quickly. Because faith is really at the heart of all knowing. Because knowing isn't actually a risky act. Here's what I mean. Well, Leslie Newbigin wrote a book about this you might enjoy called um, Proper Confidence. He says this, the universe is not provided with a spectator's gallery in which we can survey the total scene without being personally involved. True knowledge of reality is available only to the one who is profoundly committed to the truth already grasped. You don't get to just sort of be this objective person checked out and kind of try to think about what might be true. 
you're already in something. Even when you read various deconversion narratives, and you can find lots of them around on the internet or whatnot, what you find is people haven't actually lost faith in one thing, they've transferred faith to something else and to a different community. If you want to explore that, um, Tim Keller's book, Making Sense of God, is actually a really great book. It would really help you to read it this summer. So what has all that got to do with us? Well, Descartes offered up the idea that we could have certainty, certainty. It was a false hope, and yet here's the thing. So many of us are still striving after it. What do I mean by that? Well, think about the kind of disappointment many have with Christianity. Maybe people in this room. We often come to Christ looking for answers because the quest for absolute certainty is actually driving us. But when we find that faith in Christ provokes even more questions, then if your real idol and your real longing is for certainty, then our questions will drive us away from Christ. Just because people are asking questions doesn't mean that they actually want answers. Sometimes people ask questions because they want to keep answers at bay. And it's worth pondering. Why are you thinking what you're thinking? Why are you asking what you're asking? See, God will not sit still and let you poke and prod and examine him the way you might a frog that you're dissecting. It doesn't work that way. God is the one who examines us. He's the one who asks the real questions that we must deal with. You see it all over in the, in the Bible. Jesus, who do you say that I am? Jesus presses the disciples. You're following me? Who do you think I am? That's really kind of uncomfortable, isn't it? We'd rather just kind of follow along. We'd rather be fans. And Jesus turns around and says, who do you think that I am? Or, Adam, where are you? Now, God never asks questions because he doesn't know the answers. He asks questions to cause us to ponder. Where are we? Who do we say he is? If you've come to this year of college and you haven't asked those kinds of questions, where are you? Who do you think Jesus is? There's no time like the present. There's no time like the present. But here's the thing. You can't examine Christianity from a safe distance and get it all figured out and then enter into it. It doesn't actually work that way. The only way is to come into it, to become part of it. And you know what you'll find? You will not find all your questions answered. You will find actually more questions that you never do were questions. You know, I, I, there's a, a guy, John Frame, wrote a great book on apologetics and in his chapter on suffering and the problem of evil, he says, look, if you come to the Bible wanting the kinds of answers that don't lead to new questions, well, then the Bible isn't going to give you that, particularly about the issues of suffering and evil. But if you come to the Bible looking for the kinds of answers that enable you to keep trusting on in the midst of life under the sun and the frustration, well, the Bible has those kinds of answers all over the place. Because ultimately, the Bible says truth is in a story that's still unfolding. It's not in certainty, it's in confidence. Martin Luther said it so well. He said, I know not where he leads, but well do I know my guide. Hmm. 
See, we often want certainty, and we try different things. Sometimes we look to it through, you know, theological knowledge, if I can just figure it all out, and then you come upon some perplexing question that the Bible just doesn't address directly. Deuteronomy 29, 29, one of my favorite verses. This was actually John Calvin, the great theologian's favorite verse. You know what it says? What has been revealed belongs to us, and what is secret belongs to the Lord. And the beginning of wisdom is knowing that there's a difference between those things. But then other people say, okay, I can't figure it out. I just need somebody to tell me what's true. And they look to different authorities for certainty. And then some look for it in experience. If I can just have an experience, a a testimony of some sort, some mountaintop experience, I'll be able to look back on that for the rest of my life and never ask questions again. And then you sit in a sociology class or a psychology class and they have different ways of explaining what you thought was your airtight testimony. And you're gonna have to think about it. And you're gonna have to ask more questions. And you're gonna have to come talk to your community about, what do you think about this, right? So there's all kinds of ways that we try to, use, to r- try to pursue certainty, and it always leaves us vulnerable. But living in line with Augustine's dictum, I believe in order to know, faith is under knowledge. Let me just give you a couple closing thoughts. One, approach understanding with humility. Reason is a tool to receive God's revelation, not sit in judgment upon him. Wisdom is not just knowledge, it's knowledge in its proper context, where we see and enjoy that God is God and we're not. Approach understanding with humility. Wisdom, second, means that recognizing God has not promised to answer all our questions or tell us everything we might want to know. Now, let me just say this. I know a lot of people that I feel, especially evangelical Christians, that I feel like don't dig deep enough into what's been revealed. They're just really content with a very superficial knowledge of God. That was me all the way through college. I, I think there's two, this, this Deuteronomy 29, 29, what's been revealed belongs to us, what's secret belongs to the Lord, cuts two ways. For many of us, you need to actually study the Bible. I remember years ago, um, a student asking me all these questions, and we would just get together and sit down, and for like hours, he would just pepper me with questions. I'd be like, well, it's in the Bible here and here. And after about three of these times, I was like, you know, it might actually help you to read the Bible yourself. Because, I, again, I, I'm, I'm happy to answer your questions, but what I really want is for you not to just become dependent on me, but actually, like, if you started reading, some of these questions are pretty basic questions. I don't mean to shame you, but I mean to encourage you. Like, some of these things have been revealed, and you don't know it because you've never read it. And it's there for you to read. On the other hand, there are people that like, unless God tells me exactly how this works with this and why this happened, I'm never going to trust him. And that may be part of the secret knowledge that you're not going to understand until the day when there are no more questions. So, wisdom recognizes that God has not promised to ask, to answer all our questions or tell us everything we might want to know. C.H. Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, said this, whenever I find a mystery in the Bible, I consider that God has set a little altar there for me to kneel and worship, that the mysteries are intended to be an altar of devotion. This has a huge impact, of course, on how we deal with suffering and the problem of evil and so many other things, but let me just jump to the next point. Wisdom means recognizing that life is not predictable, and the reason it's not predictable is because it's an ongoing story. 
We know the end of the story. Here's the thing, right? We know the end of the story. We enter into glory. All things are made right. Shalom is fully realized, but we don't know if tomorrow you'll get cancer. Right? We know the end of the story, but we don't know tomorrow. As a matter of fact, the book of James says wisdom means not even saying, hey, I'm going to go do this and go to this town and make all these plans. He says, say, if God wills. And not just as a little little talisman or a little like, you know, superstitious phrase, but actually believe it. That your next breath is dependent upon God giving it to you, right? And that's important. That's part of wisdom is recognizing that. So we know how the story ends, but we don't know what tomorrow will bring, death or new love. You don't know, and neither do I. God has not promised a controllable, predictable life, but he's promised to give us himself, and he's given us Christ in whom all the treasures of wisdom are hid. That's Colossians 2.3. Ecclesiastes teaches that knowledge, while great, cannot serve as a substitute for God. It can't remove the frustration of life after the fall, but it can tell us how then we shall live. And here's the thing. Faith is living with an eye towards the city that is coming. This is why we talked about this so much in Hebrews. We went through Hebrews. Hebrews is a book written to Christians who are suffering intense persecution. And the call is for them to live for the city that is to come. And remember this point, faith is seeing more, not seeing less. This is one of the most profound things that Augustine gets, is that faith is not closing your eyes to reality, it's saying there's more to reality than what you can see. There is. And that's important. That needs to be integrated into how you think about everything you think about. You see, the idea of the university is ultimately a Christian idea. It is, right? The university emerged within the Christian worldview that there is a unity to all these areas of knowledge. But often, as the idea of the university developed and kind of made its way, all the various disciplines often set themselves up as the sole sum total of all knowledge. As a Christian, or one who's wanting to understand what a difference Christianity makes, you have to connect dots. And the Bible is the key to that, but the Bible doesn't tell us everything about everything. What it tells us is true and reliable, but it doesn't tell us everything but it tells us to explore the world, to go seek after these questions, but be careful that you don't demand more than God has offered to give. And ultimately, trust him even with the gaps because Jesus, Jesus demonstrated that God can be trusted. He did, because he came for people that wanted knowledge more than they wanted God. He came for people that wanted to run off into folly, even the folly of saying, crucify him. And he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. (laughs) Aren't you glad that you have a God that says that sometimes to you, (laughs) about you? Father, forgive her. She doesn't know what she's doing. But love her anyway. Right? Father, forgive him. He knows exactly what he's doing. But love him anyway. 
That's our hope, right? That's our hope. Let's pray.